Hello, PodFam, and hello, Rachel. How are you today? I am good, Laura. How are you today? I'm good. What are you drinking tonight? I actually have something special. Oh, you by do? my standards. Ooh, yeah. What is it? It's really not that special, but I have a hot chocolate today because it's starting to get colder. And oh. I just, oh, it's so good. Except it's, you know, like one of those ones that just come in the tin can, like the Celestial Seasonings one. Nice. Hey, hot chocolate is hot chocolate. It's always good, especially when it's starting to get cold out. Exactly. Well, this brand just reminds me of childhood and makes me feel very cozy. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan. But what are you drinking? I'm having cinnamon bun rooibos tonight. And um, I thought I would give like the cinnamon bun some glaze. And mm-hmm. so I frothed up some oat milk and put that on top. So it's kind of like a cinnamon bun latte. That sounds delicious. It is. I, I love like that. It. Yes. I love it's very that. very sweet. It's like a little dessert in a cup. I want that. So what are we going to be talking about today? Oh, today is an interesting topic. Yeah. And I don't even know what this episode is going to be called yet. I, I don't know. It's just really like the challenges that we face as millennials. And I don't want to exclude anyone. So Gen Zers, if you are listening, I think this also applies to you because our problems are one and the same. Oh, yeah. It just started with us first. And unfortunately, the generation after us also has to deal with it. But you're yeah. you're like a true millennial, right? Yeah, I was born in 92, so I definitely identify as millennial. And um, that's the one thing about generations, you know, you see so many different articles on when they think Gen X ended and millennials started, Mm -hmm. or I guess we're Gen Y, really. (laughs) Technically, we're Gen Y, but then we became millennials, which is whatever, who cares? And then there's the Gen Zers. And for me, I think if you were born in the 90s, especially like Mm -hmm. early mid-90s, you know, you remember life before computers were our lives and same with cell phones. Um, Mm -hmm. So to me, you're a millennial. I think if you were born, you know, early 80s, mid-80s, you're Gen X. Yeah, that's that's But that's my personal opinion. Everyone has their own time frame for this. Yeah. I am technically a cusper. You are a cusper. Yeah, you're a 96er. So, you know, I, I mean, personally, I think you relate more to the millennial problems, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think with like my age range of kind of the people born between 96 and 99, it's just which generation, whether it's millennials or Gen Z that you relate to the most, that's where you fall. I wouldn't say that I really relate to Gen Z, so I've always just called myself a millennial. Yeah, I'd consider you a millennial. Yeah. The the generation that is ruining single-handedly, might I add, ruining all the industries. I know. We're just terrible people. Like, yeah. How dare we destroy the economy when we were, I don't know, I think I was uh, 13 years old. <laughs> well, Laura, you got to stop buying that avocado toast. I didn't even know I had that problem, but I'm so glad they told me. I know. And like, if my problem with going to buy coffee every day, oh my gosh, like, I never knew I, I, I even left the house. Well, Laura. If you stopped buying coffee every day, you would be able to afford to buy a house. Didn't you know? No, I didn't know. No idea. My avocado toast, coffee drink, and lifestyle is keeping me from one of the most important purchases of my life. Didn't know. Well, now you do, so you can really turn it around now. Apparently. Wow, I didn't I didn't realize that would fix all my problems. I know. It's kind of shocking, really, but, you know, that's what a lot of the articles said. But as you can tell, we're a little bit salty. (laughs) 
I'm really fucking salty actually about this. <laughs> yeah, we were we had a discussion today where we were like, okay, so how are we really going to structure this episode? Because it feels like there's not really solutions that we can offer. But I do always really love having these discussions and gauging people's thoughts on the struggles of different generations. So I hope that you guys like it. And if any uh, millennials are listening, which I think a lot of our listeners are, I hope you get salty with us. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just going to tweak your your explanation of what happened earlier today. Okay, thanks. You came with an outline and the research <laughs> and the facts. And you're yes. like, okay, I need to structure this in a way where Laura doesn't rant for three hours. You're <laughs> Let's not be honest. Wrong. That is what you did. <laughs> you're not wrong. But I feel like that just really is like a foundation of our friendship. I remember a couple episodes ago where I came into an episode and you're like, and here's Rachel, the fact girl. <laughs> yep, it's true. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, one of us keeps the content spicy and, you know, punchy. The other one keeps the content kind of spicy, but also makes sure that we're not here four hours later. You keep us on task. That's what you do. <laughs> I just think it's the basis of a beautiful friendship and podcast partnership. But Exactly. You know, you know so – we are going to touch on three topics because we could not touch on them all. And we actually, usually when we do these kind of episodes, we do like our five top issues that we want to talk about. But we were like, if we did five, we would still be here tomorrow morning. So we are going to talk about our views on entry-level jobs and why they literally are not entry-level in any way, shape, or form. Our views on the housing and rental market where Laura is really going to shine because I get most fired up. <laughs> yes, she knows a lot more than I do. So I'm going to also be educated along with you guys. We are also going to discuss the societal pressure to get married and have children, which I know we talked about a bit in one of our late latest episodes about changing friendships. But we realized that we got a little bit fired up about it in that episode. So we were like, let's just dedicate a whole section of another episode just to that. Before we get into this episode, I do just want to add in a little trigger warning here. We are, towards the end of the episode, going to be discussing marriage and children and different reasons why you might choose to have them or not have them. And part of that conversation could be triggering to some listeners. So just as a forewarning... And I hope you enjoy the episode if you choose to stay and listen. Yes. So let's kick it off with jobs and how they really aren't entry level anymore because <sighs> I don't know how you do it, but for some reason, we all need three to five years experience for a job that will only pay you, if you're lucky, $35,000 a year. Yeah. So let's crack into it. Laura, have you ever heard the stereotype that Millennials just demand high salaries that they haven't earned, and they feel like they should be promoted or move up the corporate ladder at a faster rate than they are, yada, yada, yada. Have you ever heard that before? Sounds vaguely familiar, and I think our other request was beanbag chairs for some reason. Beanbag chairs and ping pong tables, I'm pretty sure. that's That was it. That yeah. was it. I don't know about you, but like, I can't sit in a beanbag chair. If I sit in a beanbag chair, I am not getting back up. No, I'll be stuck down there. Yeah. So I don't know who said that because like we're old, but when you pull back the curtain, the average salary for a millennial is disproportionately lower 
compared to the rest of the workforce right now, which you could say is just because, okay, they're one of the younger generations in the workforce, so they have less experience, so they get paid less. But the difference is, is that the average salary is 20% lower for millennials than it was for their parents at that very same age. So there's the case where people are making a lot less, but then there's also the case where people are employed, but they're underemployed, which is just mm, not fun. And I think the main problem here, amongst other things, is that the cost of living compared to the salary that most millennials are making You can barely cover the necessity items. No, like it's not right. And I know we're going to get into housing later, but renting, housing, living is one of our biggest expenses in life. Mm -hmm. And it's literally taking up half or sometimes more of that monthly income. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny because all these people, I'm going to call them, say, oh, millennials, like they're out always doing events and, and eating out, takeout coffee, avocado toast, like whatever, insert whatever. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there is no money in that budget. Like there is so much going to your rent, your Mm -hmm. car if you have one, your insurance, your phone bill, your internet, utilities, everything else. And it's really frustrating that other people and generations are just like, oh, they're just like fooling around and wasting their money. No, Mm -hmm. they are not. Like out of all the people I know, they are so conservative with their money because they have to be. They have to live paycheck to paycheck or else they're not going to have a place to live. They're not going to be able to buy groceries. Like Mm -hmm. this is a real crisis that we're in and no one's really taking it seriously. No. And one thing that really bothers me about that where they are ragging on people for being like, oh, well, they're going out for dinner. See, they went out for dinner once a week with their friends. They shouldn't have done that if they were serious about saving money. And it's like, okay, but there is also a sense of joy that people deserve to have in their life. And I don't know about you, but like when I lived in the city, I could only afford maybe one dinner a month with friends. Yep. So I just didn't go out otherwise. But they latch onto those single events and they're like, mm, they're wasting their money. And it's like, mm, no. But I feel like that's going to be a big theme throughout this entire episode. <laughs> it will <laughs> be. the cost of living. It will be. Yeah. Because really, that's that's a huge thing for us. I know relationships, that's totally different, but not really. So let's talk more about entry-level jobs. First of all, there's this huge thing where are they actually appropriate for an entry-level job? Some, yes, some no. I think an important thing though is that the wage that is being offered, whether it's by the hour or on a salary, it really isn't matching the effort that is required. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these entry level jobs, you're kind of someone's bitch. I know, Rachel, you've oh. <laughs> literally been in that. I'm kind of using you as an example here where mm-hmm. you were expected to be on 24 7, yet they mm-hmm. weren't going to pay you anymore. No. And when you actually calculated your salary that you earned based on how many hours you worked, you made less than minimum wage. I made less than minimum wage regardless. Yeah. So we have these entry-level jobs that really are not paying the worker for what they're worth. And I have so many thoughts on this. I'm just trying to pick one. Which one do I talk about first? One of the things is I think it makes us devalue ourselves. So mm-hmm. we're too afraid to negotiate. We're too afraid to ask for anything better because we are literally given the impression of you are replaceable mm-hmm. and you should feel grateful that you have this job. And I think that's just such 
an issue with our generation is we are trying to be such people pleasers that we never get any further because we're expendable. And they treat us like they could just fire us at any second Mm -hmm. and have two new people in at a Mm -hmm. less, a cheaper, even cheaper uh, wage than what you're already working at. And then also on that, like I actually have a bit of a story and it relates to entry-level jobs and internships. Mm -hmm. So to me, unpaid internships are so wrong. Like I don't know who thought of that, but – Oh, it's absolute garbage. They're literally the devil. It's just gatekeeping because so many people cannot afford unpaid internships. No, like would you be able to work a a year-long internship? No. And not get paid? I sure couldn't. I couldn't even do it for a week. (laughs) I'd be like – I know. No, no. I'm worth more than this. And the problem is unpaid internships are, in a sense, the new entry-level job. Mm-hmm. That's how you get your foot in the door. You get the contacts. You network. Mm-hmm. Yet they're not going to pay you. And and here's here's my story that just – it's disgusting to me is I know someone and she worked for a large corporation. Mm-hmm. And she was not a part of this, but she told me the story is that every summer they would hire a crop of interns – Mm-hmm. And they would work for three months and a lot of them expected to hopefully land a job and they would cut all of them. All oh of them God. would be fired. And then they'd bring in a fresh crop. And that mm-hmm. is how they never had to pay anyone, yet they used all of their intelligence and their work and everything. And that's mm-hmm. to me, that's just, that should be illegal. It really should be illegal. I have a huge problem with it too when entry-level jobs ask you to do a project for them as a requirement of the interview process. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Explain that a little bit more for me. Yeah. So there are cases that sometimes they'll be like, oh, answer these questions for us before you come that are like technical questions or put together a presentation and show us your skills. But I've heard about cases oftentimes where the person has done that work And basically, they just took it and then they just didn't call them again. Again, should be illegal. It really should. I think it's completely inappropriate. But one feeling that I really want to focus on is exactly what you said of that feeling that you're not worth anything and Mm -hmm. that you're easily replaceable. And oftentimes, people take low-paying entry-level jobs because when you're trying to get into the job market, you don't feel like anything better will come along. So no. You know, you're already feeling anxious and not in a place to negotiate, but then you're also going into a situation where there's 10 people outside during your interview who could just take the job right out from under you. So why would you push to negotiate for a higher salary? Just put your head down and deal with it because otherwise someone will come take your spot, which is a very, very toxic environment to live in because like how do you perform in a way where you produce good work if – you always feel like you're always in fight or flight mode. Exactly. Like you feel like you have no job security Mm -hmm. and, you know, you don't know you could just walk in one day and not have a job. It's really wrong. And I think that kind of leads off onto one of our other points where millennials are very much accused of job hopping. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, we're so unhappy in our work that – we look around and we we get a new job and, you know, hope it's better, but it's a vicious cycle. You know, whatever the reason you got a new job, whether they fired you after three months before your probation was up, you know, now you're back on the market trying to find something because you need something. And, mm-hmm. you know, just a, as I just said, you're looking for something that's better. I hope 
people who are doing that, you know, they are finding better things and moving up the ladder that way. But it's so hard because often you never get off the bottom rung of the ladder because you hop from entry-level job to entry-level job. Mm -hmm. And then when, you know, the higher-ups look at your resume, they're like, oh, well, you don't seem that loyal. It's kind of like a double-edged sword because even though you're trying to find something better, that history is is following you around. So Mm -hmm. it's very anxiety inducing (laughs) Um, just thinking about that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. the system is so broken and Mm -hmm. okay we're not gonna get into capitalism (laughs) that's a whole other day yeah Um, we try not to get too political with our with our podcast so our system is so broken that Mm -hmm. there are really no easy answers because corporations and businesses they are so bottom line first Mm -hmm. and not people first and really Good businesses know that your most valuable asset are your employees. Yeah. Because they carry your corporate culture. They keep the lights on. And I don't know. I'm just so sick of seeing businesses that really just use and abuse their employees, toss them out, Mm -hmm. get a new fresh crop in instead of actually, you know, nurturing them and then making your business so much stronger because you're building loyal employees that want to see the business succeed. Like if you just keep bringing in people and cutting them out, you're never going to have anyone who actually cares about your company. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a bigger picture here and I don't think a lot of corporations are seeing it. No, I agree. And I also think as well with those jobs that pay that very bottom line, like 30000 to $35,000 a year are cutting themselves off from so much good talent that literally cannot afford to live off of that salary, which is so many, so many of us. And when you look at like the film industry as an example is like, okay, anywhere that you're going to work in the film industry is going to be like Los Angeles, New York City, Toronto Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. North America, to name a few, Atlanta a little bit. But in Atlanta is like a bit more affordable from what I know. But just think about how that industry is giving $34,000 a year, shall we say, but the average rent is $1,200 for one person, just for a bedroom, just for a bedroom in Mm -hmm. those cities. This is all like before taxes, right? So in the end, after taxes, they have about $500 to spend on necessities. That's just a good example of how cost-burdened so many millennials are How is the millennial supposed to grow in their industry when they have to be in this expensive city to have the good opportunities, but the good opportunity doesn't pay you enough money to live in the city? I have a solution here for you, Rachel. What you do is get a second and third job and a side hustle. Duh. You're supposed to spend every waking moment of your life earning money. You're not supposed to sleep. You're not supposed to see your friends and family. Forget about your mental well-being. That's that's not important. Okay? That's out the window. Yeah. You are just supposed to work extra jobs to pay for your bedroom that's not even its own apartment. It's literally a bedroom in a house mm-hmm. that you never get to see because you're out working paying for it. Oh, my God. I could just – I need to I need to move off of it because I feel myself getting elevated and I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Well, I have one more thing that I need to stand on my soapbox and say. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So let's say you got off the bottom rung. You're on the second rung. You're making hopefully a little bit more than minimum wage. You're making a living wage maybe, Laura. 
Maybe. Maybe you can pay your bills and like Maybe. put $50 into your savings account. All right. Then there's the government and taxes. Okay. So at least if you don't make much money, you usually get a tax credit back. You get a little tax return. Yes. However, as soon as you are off that rung and on the next one, the government decides that, oh no, you make plenty of money. You owe us more. more. You owe us more. There is no tax return for you. No. And that's a really frustrating spot where I think a lot of people are and no one is talking about it because, okay, great. You're not making minimum wage anymore. You're, like, you're making a decent salary, let's say between um, 50 and 60,000, okay? Like, or maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You're not making enough where you can be a homeowner. So you have no benefit to those credits. Yeah. And lots of other things that you would normally purchase that would then come back to you in in your tax return. So really, when you're on that second rung, you're getting screwed by taxes now because there are no credits that are applicable to you. Yeah. So it's just like one of those things where finally, yay, but oh, no, never mind. Sorry. You owe us that money. Yeah. So anyway, I'm getting off the soapbox on jobs. That's okay. <laughs> to summarize, entry-level jobs should not demand years of experience when the point is to get experience. That's my definition of entry level. Yeah. Unpaid internships are absolutely not fair, and all it does is just lock good talent out of the workplace. True. And hot take. This is a hot take. Desiring a position that provides experience, pays you a living wage, and values your well-being should not be a special ask. It really should be the normal. It really should be the normal. And unfortunately, it's not. I wish I had some good advice on ways that we could help improve this, but I think we just have to continue getting loud about it and having conversations. Yeah, I think one of the most important things that we can do is, you know, vote, be loud, Mm -hmm. tell people what you want and don't take anything less. Like, you know, the baby boomers, they were one of the most influential generations ever Mm -hmm. because they were loud, right? Mm -hmm. And they... They stood for what they believed in and they didn't back down until they got it. And I think we need to do the same, which a lot of people are starting to do the same. You know, I really hope that they start to listen because the millennials and the Gen Zs, like, we're a pretty big group. Aren't millennials like the largest generation in the workforce right now? I think we're getting up there. As more baby boomers like retire, like we really are becoming the largest group. And we are like hopefully one day going to have – a lot of influence. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the world kind of has to be ready for that because a lot of us are unhappy. Yeah. And a good, a good one too. And I know that this is hard, especially when you're just out of school and like you really need to get a job, but ask for what you know you're worth. Yeah. The worst they'll ever say is no, right? Yeah. And then you know for a fact that that's probably not a good place for you to be. Because if they're putting their foot down about paying you a living wage at the beginning, I can tell you right now, they're not going to budge on it two years from now when you're in the same place. Yep. Same salary, same position. Probably yep. more responsibility. Yep. And I think that is something that the individual can do as well because the more and more of us that say no when you're in a hiring situation, I think can help the tables turn a bit. Absolutely. Yes. So are you ready to educate us on the housing market? All right. Well, let's see where this conversation goes. I don't think it'll be as long as the job one. 
No, we have a lot of thoughts on that. I'm sorry, guys. If you're still here, yeah. thank you. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next soapbox. So we're going to take a, a step to your right, please, and talk about housing. So I just want to start off with the average debt for millennials. So just to bring in the idea that we're not starting with a clean slate, you know, let alone having savings or like nothing at all. Most people are starting with $27,000 worth of debt. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that number might seem low because a lot of people do graduate with 50000 100000 even more mm-hmm. in debt from school. And it's because, mm-hmm. you know, they need to have all these degrees to get all these entry-level jobs. Yep. No, we're not getting on that soapbox. We're staying off the soapbox. <laughs> Step down. Step down. Stay off the soapbox. No more. And so this is really hard for millennials because, you know, we watched our parents and even earlier generations buy a home and it wasn't a huge deal. You know, that's just what you did with your normal nine to five job and you enjoyed your home because you only worked your nine to five job. You didn't have to work another one or two jobs to pay for it. And just to give a little perspective, so in 1976, the average price of a home was around $82,000. Now, of course, everywhere it's a little bit different. And especially through the 80s, you know, it was harder to get a mortgage. Um, Interest rate was a lot higher than what we have. And you had to put down um, at least 20% Mm -hmm. of a deposit. So granted, that is a lot of money. I'm not saying that earlier generations had it easier than us because they all had their own struggles. What I'm saying is like the inflation of homes yeah. does not match everything else from no. that time to where we are now. No. Because even for perspective, 30 years ago, okay, in the 90s, oh, hard to believe. The average what? home. That was 30 years ago? Yes, yes, the 90s were 30 oh. years ago. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. Um, but even then, the average home was around $110,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're looking at a gap here of about uh, 15, 20 years. Before we get into what the price is now, do you have an average of what the salary to house price was then, kind of that range? Yes, I do. So uh, around 1985, the average uh, family income was around $32,000. And today, Day, the family income is about $74,000, just under $75,000. And just highlight that word family, not individual. Okay, so that's a very important distinction. Yes. So when we look at the housing prices, so as I said, you know, in 76, you're looking at 82,000. In the 90s, you're looking at 110. So not a very big jump over the 10 to 15 years. The average home price, which I don't know. I'm I'm starting to think this is an old figure because it's five hundred and fifty-eight thousand dollars. That's definitely pre-COVID number for sure. Yeah, because I swear, like a shit box that you're gonna tear down. Actually, I I watched a bidding war over a shit box that you would tear down, and it nice. sold for eight eight hundred ninety-nine thousand dollars. That's gross. I'm currently watching them tear it down and rebuild it. Wow, it's disgusting. That hurts my soul. Yeah. Anyway, like, let's just kind of look at those numbers there where the difference between the 82,000 and the 110,000, not a big jump Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden 30 years later, you know, you've got an extra 
$450,000 on there, that's a big jump. Yeah. So, yeah, and you can just tell just from the difference in the salaries. Yes, the family income has doubled in yeah. that time, but the housing price, like that's that's five times larger. So yeah. the numbers don't work. No. And just going back to down payment, um, I, th- I found this really interesting fact here where if a couple wanted to save for their down payment about 20% in mm-hmm. 76, it would have taken them about five years, which okay. that's understandable. That seems like a reasonable amount of time. Yep. Where today, and this is the average across Canada, 14 years. And do you want to know the GTA number? I don't, but tell me. 24 years. I should have started saving when I was a baby. Yeah, like I don't understand. Why weren't you just born and you started putting your pennies away? God, Rachel. Could have had a home by now. You're 25. I wasn't being smart. You know, my one-year-old self, she wasn't living up to her earning potential, clearly. No, clearly not. And one debate, I love having this debate with people because I find it so fascinating where they come from. And there really is no no right or wrong decision, but it is the difference between renting and buying a house. I love this debate. I love it because you just see such different viewpoints. And really, like I, I see both. I can un- completely understand why someone would buy a home and why someone would choose to rent. I find that a lot of people, they kind of shit on renting. They do. A little bit. You know, they just kind of say like, oh, I'm just like throwing money away. But really, you're not. And I think this is a bit like going back to influence Mm -hmm. that society has on us that we need to, you know, get the good job, buy the house, do the family. It's okay if you don't want to own a home Mm -hmm. because really what I love about renting is the price that it is, that's what you pay. Right. You know, if the water pipes are leaking, the roof needs to be replaced, whatever else goes wrong, that's not your problem. No. Right. You just pay whatever you're paying. However, with a home, you know, I think a lot of people, they get in their idea of like, oh, I'm just paying my mortgage. It's cheaper than the rent. It's all great. I'm building equity. Yes. These are all true. However, people need to have that realistic education where there is a lot more to owning a home than just paying the mortgage. You know, you have insurance. Um, If anything goes wrong, that's your problem. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people get themselves into trouble Mm -hmm. when they feel like they have to buy a house. They must have a house because renting is not a good idea. And then they get themselves even more financially strained because of all these, you know, hidden costs to them, but really not so hidden costs because no one ever educated them. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other problem with, with housing. So don't feel like you need to buy a home because that's what society tells you you need to do. Because mm-hmm. what's the great thing about renting, you know, okay, we're, we're accused of job hopping. Going back to that for a second. Well, if you want to take a job over in Italy. You can do that. You can do that. Or if you own a home. You're kind of stuck there. Mm -hmm. So kind of rethink your position a little bit on the rent situation. Yes, rent prices are hard to find right now. Like we were all kind of hoping something would collapse in the rental market after everyone started buying homes, but yeah, things are about the same. Well, that's because they're just using it as income properties. Oh, now they're income properties. Don't even get me started on income properties. (laughs) Respect for people who have income properties, but- the price gouging on that. Oh, like, oh my God. I don't know. I feel like there's just such 
lack of consideration for your fellow human being. Yeah. You know, like it's all about like I have to win, not let's all get better together. The housing market has a feeling of uh, it's not everyone deserves to have a clean, safe home. It's not that anymore. It feels like having a home is a privilege that only some can have. It's always been a privilege. Don't get me wrong. But it is a basic human right to be able to have housing. Now with renting, some people can't even afford to rent. So just literally like having a place to stay is becoming a class thing. Yeah. And I think until we start treating this as a basic human right, and I'm, I'm agreeing with you, you know, owning a home is is a privilege and a luxury, but we are getting so far past that, you know, now people don't even have shelter. Yeah. And I think that's going to be an increasing problem in the years to come. Mm-hmm. I don't even know, like, where, where are these people going to go? Like, are we going to live in tent cities? I just, oh, it's scary. It's so scary. I mean, in our major city near us, at least, there are parks that are basically tent cities and the city is pushing them out. Yeah. And the thing is, like in times when I've driven past those parks or walked past, you know, I've seen families in there, young families. So I don't know. I think this is a conversation more people should be having Yep. because I don't know. We just need some better solutions. Like there's nothing wrong with social housing. Honestly, I'm at a point where if I saw like a nice like mobile home park, right, I would fucking buy in there. (laughs) Like double wide trailer. Perfect. That's all the space I need. You know, yeah. I don't I don't want a big house. I don't need it, but I do need a safe place to live. Mm-hmm. And a lot of p- other people do. So, let's get loud on that people because I know like all us millennials we're like sitting here, you know, rubbing our hands together waiting for the uh, market to collapse. I don't know if anyone else is doing that, but I certainly yeah. am because I just don't see how anything is attainable. I think the government no longer cares how mm-hmm. much debt we have. There's no consideration for that. Like, you know, you could be $500,000 in debt. They're like, whatever, you know, it's fine. We're going to tax you <laughs> more. Yeah. And I think they just need to care again. Yeah. If, if they ever did. <laughs> but, you know, it's just yeah. getting so out of hand. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people in our generation, well, not a lot, but who have had the luxury of having their families help, which is fantastic for them. But I think it also puts the pressure on the rest of people being like, well, what's wrong with me? Like, how come my friend over here who has a similar job to me can afford a house, but I can't? Yeah. I think us collectively as a generation, especially after the past year, need to stop judging each other for living with their parents because that is a very ingrained pattern in our ideology that living with your parents is wrong or living with family is wrong when you're at a certain age. But like, we just need to accept it as a reality that right now that's where the world is going yeah and really if you look back at history this whole moving out on your own kind of thing that's very new yeah for generations we were all multi-generational households so i don't know Mm -hmm. maybe we're going back to that you know maybe Mm -hmm. we all need our our you know grandma and (laughs) grandpa aunt and uncle we're all just gonna live in one one big house Mm -hmm. that's a very common thing in a lot of other cultures as well it's a very western thing Oh, it's totally Western. Yes. Yeah. The thing is, if it keeps going up, we're going to have millions of people not be able to afford shelter. Mm-hmm. And if it crashes down, well, maybe a few people will be able to capitalize on that. But then we're still going to have millions of people who don't have shelter now. 
because their yeah. homes are in foreclosure. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's it's a bumpy road. Yeah. Either way you look at it, it's bumpy. Yeah. Let's move to the next soapbox. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So we're talking about the societal pressure to get married and have children. So yeah, like I, I do admit like I do want to get married and I do want to have like one or two kids. I don't want to do like the big wedding thing. So let's actually start there. How about we just start on the wedding topic there for a moment. Okay. And because, you know, again, with social media, we see people having these not even big weddings, but like beautiful weddings and very elaborate. And, you know, my mother, she has got her hand a little bit in the wedding industry. And yeah. I think the average wedding is about $30,000, mm-hmm. which potentially people, that's your down payment right there. You only need 5%. Yet, you know, some of the weddings that she has seen, they're in the $100,000 plus. Yeah. So it's like a bit of this expectation and competition to see who can have the best wedding. And I know it's a super special day and like a lot of people they remember for the rest of their lives, but there's so much that you could be doing with all that money. You know, mm-hmm. like instead of trying to impress everyone, impress your future self. I agree. And it's almost very common now that people do the house, the kids, then they get married. Yeah. Right? Like it's almost now the afterthought because there were things that were more important in front of that. Mm -hmm. So off the topic of weddings, because I feel like a lot of our listeners who are millennials and Gen Z will kind of get where we're coming from there, at least from what I've seen on social media. But a point of contention that I have with this pressure is like we talked about in our Losing Friends episode, it's just the societal norm that it's okay to ask people when they're getting married or if they're having children. Oh, yes, perfectly acceptable to ask. And my biggest problem with this is the fact that it can be super, super harmful to people and their mental health because for a lot of reasons, one of them is, you know, getting married and having a child ever since we were toddlers has been pushed on us as like, this is this end all or be all goal. This is all you Mm -hmm. should want, right? Like once you get married, that's when your life begins. Yes, And we're not just marrying the first person that we're in a long-term relationship with. I feel like we're too conscious, but then it creates this effect where you feel so behind in life, which makes you feel depressed. And then that can honestly push somebody to maybe getting married to somebody that they shouldn't or doing something that goes against what they know foundationally to be their beliefs. And in some cases, it's completely inappropriate to ask Because in the case of children, some couples can't have children. And the fact that it's a societal norm to pry and be like, well, when are you going to have kids? That's not respecting people's circumstances. Yeah. Like, how do you know that that person just didn't have a miscarriage last week? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. um, just on the topic of another reason why people might not get married is the fact that our generation, we grew up with a very high divorce rate unlike any other generation before us. So, you know, a lot of us, you know, my parents are are separated. They separated when I was 16. And, you know, so we watched relationships fall apart. And I'm one of the fortunate ones where, you know, my, my parents, they're still friends. They just didn't work out as a couple after uh, after a while. But so many people have gone through horrific experiences as children 
when their parents did divorce, that it really turns them off from marriage Mm -hmm. because they don't want to go through it again, Mm -hmm. nor would they want to put their children through it. Mm -hmm. It's a financial disaster. Yeah. Because the government doesn't care. Mm -hmm. Like, they just kind of put up, okay, what's yours, what's mine, and split it down the middle, right? Like, so if you're with a partner who has hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt and you're fine, well, too bad for you. That's now your problem too. Yeah. So I think we're just so aware of that, that a lot of people have actively chosen that marriage isn't for them. And, you know, whether they're in a relationship or not and they cohabitate or common law, you know, whatever, there's just so many things that are now more acceptable in our culture Mm -hmm. that marriage isn't like the thing you have to do so you can live together. Yeah. And on the note of that, when you get divorced or split up like 50-50, split it down the middle, this is yours, this is mine now. We get a bad rep for this because it's like, oh, well, why are you going into your marriage like that or going into your cohabitation like that? But a lot of us are also putting in cohabitation agreements or prenup agreements. Oh, absolutely. Like how I love to think about it and how I've heard people say it is plan for the worst when you're at your happiest. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, yes, no one likes talking about prenups or cohabs because you're you're so happy in love, you're getting married, you're going on your honeymoon. But that is when you want to hammer out those details. Yeah. When you love each other, right? Mm-hmm. Unconditionally. Because you don't know five years down the road, you could both be in some pretty ugly situations. And let me tell you, you won't be playing fair. No. You know, or your partner won't be playing fair. So these are mature adult decisions and conversations that you should be having mm-hmm. when you're at your happiest. So, yeah, that's kind of my, my soapbox on on marriage there. Yeah. Do you have anything else on, on the marriage side? One thing is just when it comes to marriage and children, a lot of people are choosing not to have them because they want some spontaneity and freedom. Like our generation, as we talked about before, we talked about jobs, have to put so much of their time into work that instead of pouring the money into a home or a wedding or maybe they just choose not to have children, which is a very personal choice and it's okay to want them, it's okay to not want them, it's okay to have them, it's okay to not have them. But for some people, they want to use that money to see the world or to be able to pick up and move to Australia tomorrow if they want to. Mm -hmm. And Anything, at least in my opinion, that you want to do with your life and with your partner is right. Like you are right for doing that. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, there could be people who really do want a family, but financially they're just not stable enough to do it because, okay, in Canada, we're very fortunate to have healthcare, but in the States, like, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's like almost Mm $15,000 by the time your baby's delivered. Mm -hmm. Like- that's insane. That's a crazy amount of money. And for new parents to walk out of the hospital, that kind of a bill. Oh my like, God. Like, oh my God. Like, I just couldn't, I wouldn't be able to stomach that. But yeah. then even beyond that, you know, there's the cost of care. And what's happening now is, you know, I think COVID was a, it was a huge highlight of this where you needed someone to stay home with the kids. And a lot of the time it's it's the woman. I'm not going to make this like a, a feminist thing because, you know, we are getting a lot of men nowadays that um, have been the ones, to, the parent to stay home, which is amazing. And the thing about the cost of childcare is that normally at the cost it is now, it practically is one of the, the parent's salary. So what we're seeing, 
especially as people are being called back to work, one person will just give up their job entirely because they're kind of realizing like, well, practically I work only to pay for childcare mm -hmm. when I could just stay at home with my child. So, yeah. and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like if, if that's what you want to do and be a stay at home parent, like fantastic, mm -hmm. you know, to each their own. However, I think a new problem, whether that parent wanted to or not for financial reasons, the thing is once their child is old enough where they maybe don't need daycare or they're going to school and can kind of look after themselves after school, mm -hmm. is that parent who stayed home for, let's say, 10 years, they're now going to really struggle to get back in the workforce. They'll be that much older and ageism is a thing. As much as we bitch about being treated like children in the job market, older people have the same problem because they think, you know, oh, they're not current on what's happening. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing where their skills have been on pause for, for 10 years and then they try and get back in and it's really hard. So yeah. they're maybe not at a point in their career that they would like to be. No, I agree with that. And I do just want to say this thought just kind of came to me and like, let me know if you kind of agree with this. But as the generation that is looked at as the most immature. Carefree. Carefree. I think that it's a heartbreaking decision if you do want to have a family and you realize that you aren't capable of it. I think that that's an awful decision and an awful reality that is apparent in today's world. But acknowledging that and making the choice that, okay, we can't do it is a very mature decision and a very realist way to go about life. Absolutely. I agree with that. We definitely have been the generation that puts the most thought into these decisions. Now, not every single person in the world, but collectively we do. And, you know, just another thing, you know, the 90s were 30 years ago now and time is not so much on our side because, no. you know, as a woman enters into her 30s, her chances of getting pregnant, they do start to go down. And for our generation who've had to put off having kids for so long just so we could get financially stable enough to do it, or because we wanted to have our career for whatever reason, you put off having children. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. Because when they do want to go have children, there's that much more high risk and chance that you won't get pregnant. I know a lot of the solutions I've been seeing now is like egg freezing, which yeah. I think is totally cool. Um, oh, I do too. I think that's absolutely yeah. really that's really cool. It's really expensive. Yes. It is really, really expensive. Cool. Yeah, no, and I think it's I think it's a great option, you know, if that is a possibility for you. But again, you know, a common theme through all of our points today has been gatekeeping. So, yeah. you know, now you're making having children that much more expensive because if you've had to store your eggs, do the do the harvesting of the eggs, and now you're looking at IVF treatments. You know, that's an additional, I don't even know how much that costs, but I'm sure it's tens of thousands of dollars when you add it all up. For something that might not even work. For something that might not even work. And I don't know, I just think it's so heartbreaking for families that have had to put this off. And this will be the new mm -hmm. challenge that they face where they can't get pregnant because, you know, in their 20s, they could not afford children. And, you know, I think for the people who held off, I think they did make smart decisions. You know, they knew they couldn't bring a new life in and be able to financially support themselves and their child. And they made the right decision. But it's so mm -hmm. sad now that a lot of people are having to not not pay for the consequence because it's not a consequence. Like you didn't do anything wrong by no. waiting. Like you did, you did the right thing. 
so that when your child does come into the world, you know, you can give them a stable home. It's an unfair circumstance that they're winding up in. Yeah. So I just think the next thing we're going to see from the millennials is how many of them can't get pregnant. And that's kind of all I have to say about that. So I'm not sure if you have anything else to add on there. Uh, I I do have one more point to make just about my respect for millennials when it comes to marriage and children. And it goes back to what we were saying about how conscientious I truly think this generation is. And I really admire how open to mental health awareness and therapy our generation has been. And I think that the amount of people that are going out there and really thinking, am I truly ready to have a child? Would I be a good parent Mm -hmm. in general? Is there work that I need to do in therapy beforehand to be a good parent? Is there work in therapy I need to do before I can be a good partner and get married? Yes. I think that is fantastic because the generations that came before us and there was a huge stigma around mental health, but with it being that trend in earlier generations that just what you do is get married and have a child, no matter what, is there so much generational trauma that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Yep. And millennials get all the grunt work as usual to deal with it. Yeah. And the fact that our generation as a collective, it feels like is saying no, or I don't want to bring another life into this generational pattern. I want to break it before I have a child, I think is really amazing and really mature. It really is. And I think I think we're getting off our, our last soapbox now, right, Rachel? Yes, I think we are. We've been on a lot of them tonight. <laughs> oh yeah, we just hopped from one to the other. And to our listeners, I'm sorry if you know, if any parts were triggering at all and mm-hmm. if you didn't agree with anything. You know, we didn't really offer any solutions or I don't know, maybe there's some hidden ones that you might have picked up. But really what we wanted to do with this episode is start a conversation of things that we find to be flaws in our society. Yep. And let's not stop the conversation here. We actually have our Instagram active now. Woo! We finally did it. We're going to try and post. We're, we're both not very good Instagrammers, but come follow us on Instagram. It's T with Laura and Rachel. That's our handle. So definitely follow us and comment on our posts and let us know what your thoughts on anything millennial. You know, maybe there's a topic that we didn't cover tonight or something you want to expand on. Mm-hmm. Please come, you know, DM us if you're not comfortable putting it out in the world, Mm -hmm. but we're here to listen and we want to know what your thoughts are and like, hey, maybe there's something you completely disagree with what we said. Tell us Mm -hmm. that too, because I love to see all different sides of conversation. Rachel, I know you do as well. Yep. So anything else for you? As always, if you could give us a little subscribe on whichever platform you listen to this podcast. And if you could leave us a five-star review, that would be amazing. And we would really appreciate it because it really helps us out. And if you think any of your friends or family would enjoy our show, please share it with them so we can grow our little community. And with that, live like tea. Live like tea.